The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. I would like to welcome everybody who has joined us this afternoon to listen to our special speaker uh, by that we've invited from Guide Dog Users. Uh, he's not from Guide Dog Users, but um, and I hope you enjoy the presentation. Lori? Thank you. Thank you for joining Guide Dog Users, the Empire State this afternoon. We would like to thank ACB Media for assisting us in providing this presentation. Guide Dog Users of the Empire State is an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind of New York. To join as a member of Guide Dog Users of the Empire State, you can visit our website, www.gdues.org. Mary Beth? Hey, I'm, I'm Mary Beth Metzger, a member of Guide Dog Users of the Empire State. First of all, I, I just would really like to thank you, Lucas, for sharing some of your weekend time with us. We really, really appreciate that. Um, for those who, who don't know Lucas, um, he's a longtime guide dog instructor, certified mobility instructor, and problem solver at the Seeing Eye. His official title is Senior Consultant for Special Projects. And um, he is someone who's, who has a very well-deserved um, reputation for thoughtfulness and ingenuity in, in, and also of innovation in order to address changing environmental conditions. Uh, thanks to roundabouts, increasingly complex intersections, uh, increasingly clueless drivers, <clears throat> the proliferation of quiet cars and a whole host of other things. Um, uh, working as a team with a, gu a guide dog team is is more difficult today probably than it's ever been. And <clears throat> I'm grateful that Lucas is on our team too. And with that, Lucas, we'll just turn it over to you. Thank you, Mary Beth. Thank you, everybody You're else. <laughs> can, can you hear me all right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. Good. Um, yeah, that, I think your 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 introduction covered it pretty well, uh, Mary Beth. We're in we're in a, a time of of really rapid and acute change in so many directions. It's kind of hard to keep track of. Um, just to give you a little bit of a of my personal history in this regard, um, I grew up in New York City in an era when they hadn't even invented yellow lights. I remember green and red lights, and then there were suddenly yellow was added uh, in the middle, middle there for a while. Uh, I started working at the Seeing Eye in, in 1978 and uh, learned a little bit about traffic. Then uh, I quit in 19... Uh, 86 and went to Western Michigan University and got my uh, my master's in O&M, but I did my internship in Palo Alto, California at the Veterans Administration. Uh, and the, the late, mid to late 1980s 
was a time of pretty radical transition in intersection design. Um, I knew nothing about intersection design at the time, but the big change really was computers. Uh, so in that time frame, you began to see a shift from intersections that were controlled by essentially clockwork. I mean, I can remember in New York City standing on corners and having a, a box about the size of a bread box next to me on a pole. And every now, now and again, it would go kathunk and a light would change from green to yellow and then it would go kathunk again and it would change to red and then it would go kathunk a third time and the light would change to green going in the other direction. <laughs> uh, and those kathunks were quite literally large gears changing uh, mechanically and changing the lights. Well, I'm sure some of you, at least some of you older folks, remember those large that large uh, box on the corner that would go kathunk every now and again. But in California, which was of course ahead of the curve when I was out there doing my my internship in in uh, uh, in 1987, things had started to change already. And what you were starting to see then was what was called the beginnings, really, of actuated intersection design. Actuation meant that there were sensors built into the roadways that could make that could tell when there were cars present or waiting and change the light in response. At the time, I had no idea how they worked, and you could actually see cut into the pavement into the macadam, you could see a slot cut into the macadam. And in my mind, I thought that there was a steel plate underneath that, that, that sort of box cutout. And if I jumped up and down on it hard enough, maybe with two or three people, I could get the light to change. So I thought that what was making the lights change actually was the weight of the cars approaching on an intersect at an intersection. And that idea was not that far wrong. Uh, in the sense that in the previous, let's say, 40 years, there actually had been large springs built into side streets so that when a car came up to the intersection, it would go kathunk on the spring. And that's what would cause the electrical change that would cause the gear to, to actually change and make the light change. But by the time I got to California, that was no longer the case. They were using sensors there. There were sensors built into the roadways. Uh, and when a car came and sat on top of that electrical wire, a current running through the wire would change and send the information to a computer on the corner and the light would change in response, not to the weight of the car, but to the mass of metal that changed the electrical inductance in the wire built into the roadway. That was invisible to me. You couldn't hear it, but you would see lights change. So all of a sudden, a particular intersection would change from being, let's say, on one on and in one instance, it would the light would stay green on the side street for let's say 15 seconds. On the next time the light would change, it would only stay green for seven seconds. And I didn't know why. And it made it complicated to teach. 
finally, in about 1995, I was on a field trip in Atlanta, and I encountered three large suburban intersections with timing that at the time appeared to be unpredictable to the degree that I could not advise the people that I was working with when the best time was to cross that street. And that was, it had happened to me previously, but this was the first time it had happened in a bunch like that with three separate people at three separate, separate intersections. And that was in 1995. And it was at that point that I became involved in environmental access. And <clears throat> I was, the seeing eye was, uh, was able to send me to some traffic engineering conferences. I began to realize how large uh, a profession traffic engineering and transportation in general was in the United States. Uh, and together with my colleagues, uh, Billy Louise BZ Benson and my dear late friend, Janet Barlow, uh, we began to sort of infiltrate the traffic engineering uh, hierarchy and community and try to try to make change. Uh, early on, uh, assisted by Julie Carroll, who many of you will, will know from, from ACB circles, um, we were able to work with the uh, traffic engineering uh, sort of powers that be, Federal Highways and a group called the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices to write language into the federal guidebook called the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices that for the first time recognized and permitted accessible pedestrian signals and resulted several years later around the year 2000 in, in what essentially is the US standard for accessible pedestrian signals for the first time. That was a relatively simple fix in the sense that what was happening was in intersection design, they were creating a system where pedestrians needed to interact with the crossing to get a pedestrian timing. That's what the push buttons do, guys, if you didn't know. When you push the button, which traffic engineers curiously occasionally call pedestrian detectors. When you push the push button, you're letting the intersection know that there is a pedestrian there and that a pedestrian timing has to be applied to allow time for them to get across a major street. Well, that's actually a fairly simple problem in the sense that if you're giving information to sighted pedestrians, then you need to give it to people who are blind or visually impaired as well. And you need to figure out a way to do that that's reasonable. And that wasn't all that hard to do. It's not perfect by a long shot, and we all recognize that, but the principle of it was pretty simple. At the same time, we were beginning to hear word about roundabouts. Roundabouts. What's a roundabout? Why are they good? You know, after leaving New York City, I worked for the Seeing Eye for many years in New Jersey. New Jersey was famous for its traffic signals, uh, for its traffic circles, rather. There was the Netcong Circle, the Ledgewood Circle. You know, there were there were tons of them all over New Jersey, and they didn't work. They were they there were a lot of accidents at them. Uh, they snarled up and jammed up pretty easily, but they were high speed and dangerous. And eventually, New Jersey got rid of them. 
They were so, so problematic, New Jersey got rid of their traffic circles. And then lo and behold, five to 10 years later, they come out with roundabouts and everybody's going, we just got rid of those. Why on earth would we want to have them back? Well, there's a fundamental difference between traffic circles as we had in New Jersey or rotaries as they call them in Massachusetts and the modern roundabout. Uh, one significant difference is that at traffic circles, traffic moving around the circle have to yield to traffic coming onto the circle. Those cars are sort of accelerating uh, to get onto the circle to match the speed. Cars coming around the circle have to yield to them. Exactly the reverse is true at roundabouts. At roundabouts, cars coming onto the circle have to yield to traffic on the circle. So if you're approaching a roundabout, you have to yield to cars coming around the circle. Well, if it's just to change the rules, that's not very reliable, is it? Well, it's more than that. <clears throat> Roundabouts, the best way to describe this is if you think of an old fashioned wagon wheel with a hub and you have spokes coming into the hub and those spokes come in, let's say it has four spokes that come into this, to that hub, that those spokes approach the hub at pretty much a 90 degree angle. So if you were to drive up the, the spoke and get to the hub, you'd have to slow down to make a right turn to get onto the hub, if that makes sense to you as, a, as an analogy. And if you need clarification, we can get to that later. I can understand that. These concepts aren't easy. Um, so as opposed to having sort of a, a system where the cars are forced to accelerate onto the roundabout uh, at high speeds and traffic on the circle has to yield to them. Here, cars are forced to slow down before entering the roundabout and, uh, and wait for gaps to come on at, at slower speeds. As a result, the central island in the middle of the roundabout is much smaller than the central island in a, in a big traffic circle, and they're very efficient. Why do people like them? Why do traffic engineers like them? What's the big deal? What do we do? Why are we doing this? The central answer is safety. At regular plus shaped or T shaped intersections, the type we all grew up with and used, the possibility of accidents is number one, quite high. And number two, when they happen, they're really, really destructive. If someone makes a mistake at a traffic light and goes through a red light and T-bones another intersection, someone is going to be either severely injured or die because the speeds are quite high. At roundabouts, and this is just, I'm not, not advocating for roundabouts, it's just the truth. At roundabouts, fatalities and serious in injuries at a well-designed roundabout drop to nearly zero. Uh, and that's the re rationale for the primary piece of the rationale for roundabouts. They're also very efficient, but that's really it. Um, and when we started to hear advocacy in traffic engineering circles promoting roundabouts, we, again, meeting uh, Billy Louise Benson, BZ Benson, Janet, uh, Janet Barlow, and myself, we were all really concerned. And we were concerned because we recognized that although roundabouts were quite unique to the United States environment, 
there were similar intersections that caused problems and uh, for people who are blind or visually impaired. And those are what are called channelized turn lanes. Channelized turn lanes are dead common all over the US. I'm sure you all have them in your, in your areas, although you may choose to avoid them, which I wouldn't blame you for. A channelized turn lane is where you have a big intersection, okay? Two big streets meeting. And the, a lot of the traffic on those streets is just trying to turn right at the intersection. And some of the inter traffic on those streets is trying to go straight through. Well, what a lot of times traffic engineers will do is they will put in what's called a slip lane. So cars coming up to that intersection that want to make a right turn don't have to go all the way up to the light. They can just curve around the corner and blend in with the traffic on the perpendicular street. So a street that has a traffic island and you have to cross to the traffic island and there you might have a push button, might even have an accessible pedestrian signal that you can press to cross the major street. That's what you're crossing there. That first uncontrolled lane is called a slip lane. Uh, and the, the whole thing is called, that whole situation is called a channelized turn lane, a channelized turn lane. Well, we all knew from our practice, either training people uh, to, to travel with the long cane or working with people who had guide dogs, that that channelized turn lane posed a lot of problems for people who are blind or visually impaired because by sound, you could, you could not tell if an approaching vehicle was gonna go straight through or if it was gonna come into the channelized turn lane and come in close. And sometimes they came in pretty fast and often they were looking left if you were crossing from their right because they were trying to blend into traffic. We had all seen this and we all recognized that roundabouts and channelized turn lanes had significant similarities. And so we were very concerned about the advent of roundabouts in the United States. And in effect, we were able to make the case that, that what <clears throat> the traffic engineering community wanted to do was to import a, a non-accessible type of intersection into an ADA sensitized, sensitized culture. Uh, and so we were able to argue significantly that efforts needed to be made to make roundabouts successful. We knew we couldn't stop them. And we, you know, again, the, the safety benefits are un, unquestioned. So we knew we couldn't stop them, but we were able to sort of delay the, the, uh, <clears throat> the implementation of roundabouts by saying you have to figure out ways to make them accessible. And in effect, there have been two research, several significant research projects, but two really big ones uh, put together by uh, the uh, National, what am I trying to say? The National Academies of Science in particular, the uh, Highway Cooperative Research Projects uh, called 78 Highway NCHRP 78A and B, which looked at ways to make roundabouts more accessible to people who are blind or visually impaired. Roundabouts come in a lot of different flavors. There are very small sort of neighborhood traffic circles uh, all the way up to multiple lane roundabouts. And neighborhood traffic circles are not that problematic. Single lane roundabouts 
are not that problematic. Double and, and sometimes triple lane roundabouts can be very challenging indeed. So what are the solutions for improved roundabout design? Well, one piece of it is wayfinding, uh, what, what we call wayfinding. In other words, if you're used to approaching an a normal intersection, you know when you get to the down curve, you can listen for uh, the surge of traffic next to you, the cross traffic in front of you, uh, and make your decision based on that. If all of a sudden you're approaching a roundabout and you don't have advance warning that you're approaching a roundabout, you could very easily end up at a down curve facing into uh, moving traffic that has doesn't have any idea what you're doing there. And if you crossed, you would end up on the central island in the middle of the roundabout. That's happened. I worked with a fellow many years ago in uh, Springfield, Missouri. Um, and he did a route often, but he hadn't done it for several months. And the the that intersection uh, was transformed from a regular intersection into a roundabout. And the first time he got there, he crossed and he ended up on the middle island. And that was a very puzzling experience because there was then traffic moving all the way around him all the time. And he couldn't figure out how to get off. Somebody finally hopped out of a car and said, uh, you probably want to go over this way and got him across the thing. But and at, when I saw him, he was handling it just perfectly fine. He knew exactly where he was and what he was doing and crossed it very competently and safely. Uh, but the, the, initially, that's a shock. And that was the, the problem there was that when he came up to the end of the block, there was just the end of a strip of concrete, like a down curve. There was no guidance, no wayfinding that said, you shouldn't cross here, a patch of grass, something that indicated that it wasn't actually a crossing point. Uh, and <clears throat> that's part of what needs to happen at roundabouts is there needs to be pretty good wayfinding guidance. Uh, <clears throat> the other, uh, other things that have been used at roundabouts to improve safety are uh, what are called uh, tabled crosswalks. So in other words, it's kind of like a speed bump, but it's big and broad enough that that cars, that pedestrians can walk across the top of it and cars slow down because it's like a speed bump. It's a, a speed table. Um, and that's something that can be very useful in encouraging yielding behavior. So the problem at roundabouts for people who are blind or visually impaired is quite simply that it's difficult by sound to tell whether a car from a crossing point, it's difficult by sound to tell whether a car is going to continue around the circle or come off of it. If a car does come off, is it going to yield for you? If it yields, will you be able to hear it yield over the sound of traffic on the circle? And if it's a multi-lane roundabout, if a car in the near lane yields, will the car in the far lane yield? So uh, those are the problems at roundabouts. The solutions that have, uh, that have come up are, as I just said, tabled crosswalks. Uh, and uh, that encourages yielding behavior and slows cars down. There's also what are called rapid rectangular flashing beacons, which are when you push a button, a yellow light flashes on a pedestrian crossing sign, which lets drivers know that there's a pedestrian intending to cross. Quite effective if properly installed. And a third option is what are called pedestrian hybrid beacons, pedestrian hybrid beacons, which are uh, also called hawk signals. Uh, and what happens at a hawk is 
when most of the time the, there are no lights showing, but if a pedestrian pushes the button, the light flashes yellow, then uh, goes into a solid red, then goes into a, a, a flashing red, and then goes back to being blank. When, when, it's, when the light is red for cars, there's a, a visual and can be an auditory uh, signal or, and tactile signal that says walk sign is on to cross Mara Street or whatever. Um, so those are the three types of solutions that have been proposed to make roundabouts more accessible for people who are blind or visually impaired. So raised crosswalks, rapid rectangular flashing beacons, and uh, pedestrian hybrid beacons or hawks. So uh, interestingly now, uh, in Morristown, New Jersey, which is where the seeing eye is located, as some of you know, uh, we have a roundabout, a big one, actually, that was put in at uh, the intersection. If those of you who know the Elm Street route, when you get to the Spring Street crossing on the Elm Street route, that's now a roundabout crossing. Uh, and you have to go around the corner, get to a, a sort of indent away from the circle. And then there is one of the hawk signals there. If you push the button, it says walk sign is on to cross and you can, you can cross that roundabout. It's part of our route now. So we're very happy to have that. Um, happy is kind of in quotes there, I guess, but it's, uh, you know, we're, we're glad to have that in our neighborhood because it's coming to everybody else's neighborhood too. Um, so, and that, that's one component of what's going on in, in intersection design. And I'm happy to answer questions about that when we get to that point. Um, of course, the other component here is quiet cars and, and electric cars. And this, this is going to become, and it, this is going to become another very big issue. Uh, of course, we now have regulation requiring sound. I think in a major oversight, uh, by federal highways, they do not have a requirement for idling car sounds, and I think that's a significant problem in terms of uh, visually impaired pedestrians' ability to in, to analyze what's happening at a particular crossing, and it concerns me quite a bit. Um, the counterbalancing all that in the dog guide world is the fact that um, with COVID, over a long period of time, two years or more, Many people had no reason to get out, had no place to go. Uh, many jobs changed to being uh, online, work from home type jobs. Uh, there are dogs that have I, that I'm aware of that have had to retire early because they didn't work for two years and they kind of got used to the to being out of the army. Um, and uh, uh, and it's just it's getting more difficult out there. Uh, one of the things that that because of the quiet car issue, because of roundabouts and other types of, of, of uh, intersection concerns. One of the things I'm going to put out here now, uh, which is controversial and we'll get some reaction, uh, which is as it should be, is that you know in, in much of the world, Europe and thinking of in particular, but other places as well, people who travel with dogs also travel a cane travel with a cane, a short cane, not a, not a truly long cane, but a white, maybe white, white and red cane to make their disability more apparent to drivers. Of course, compared to the number of people who travel with canes, dog guide users are a fairly small minority. And from the point of view of a sighted driver, seeing you at a corner with a dog guide, 
requires a certain amount of processing. The driver may go something like, wow, that's a beautiful Labrador. God, that's one weird leash though. What is that? Holy Toledo, that's not a leash. That's one of those blind dogs. Uh-oh, but now you're in your, their rear view mirror already. It takes that long to process. So that the idea of using uh, a cane well displayed to indicate a crossing, particularly at a roundabout or something like that, uh, I think is going to become a safety measure that that people will want to implement. And saying all this is going to tick off a lot of you probably, and certainly other guide dog instructors and guide dog schools, but uh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> the uh, I think it's a discussion we need to have in this field. So I think that's really the end of my most of my my presentation, I'd be happy to uh, to endure the slings and arrows or outrageous fortune or the attacks or discretions or what, whatever comes my way, if uh, if if the timing is right for that moderator, folks. Hey, this is Lori Lucas, hey. and I would first like to just thank you for the work that you've done, particularly in New York City, since this is in. Uh, Guide Dog Users of the Empire State sponsored event and um, <clears throat> the work you've done in that area. Okay. Additionally, um, I, I hope that I really I really like the idea of carrying a cane, uh, which I know is done in Europe and in other areas. And I often wondered why we don't do it here in the United States. But I'm wondering if some sort of research needs to be done about yielding behaviors similar to Jean Berkwin's cane color, yep. Jean, uh, Jean and, and Janet's work in that area, and Donna. Yep. Um, so I, I think that might be an, an, an option. And I would just like to also say that everybody needs to be aware that the infrastructure funding that is coming down the pike is going to make roundabouts and intersection alterations more and more common which is even more of a reason to pay attention to the advocacy work and the information put out by the ACB. Um, I'm going to mess their name up, and I know Becky is on this call. Um, Pedestrians for Environmental Access uh, Committee um, and similar activities. Thank you. So, um Maybe now what we can do is, um, by the way, thank you so much, Lucas. I really appreciate having you here. As always, I've learned a lot. Um, I just want to uh, ask Natalie and Chanel, um, are their uh, hands being raised either in the Zoom room or the, the clubhouse? Let's start with the Zoom room, if there are. Maybe you yes. can then move, move back and forth. Yes, we do have hands raised in Zoom. Okay, want to go for um, the first one then? Yes, ma'am. So the first one is Jane Tolino. You can go ahead and unmute. All right, Jane, you're unmuted. Okay. So first of all, Luke, I have to say, enthusiastic. Greetings <laughs> to you. Good presentation. No, I get it. I get it. Okay. It was it was terrific. Uh, a question: What can we read 
that will give us better sense of history about traffic and changes. If there is a book, and if not, the challenge to you is please write the mother. I mean, book. Boy, I'd have to think about that. You know, I I actually, I had an amazing experience many years ago now, but I got on an American Airlines flight and they had the magazine, you know, that you get in the back of the seat. And there was an article in there about the origins of traffic signals. And there was another article about Mm. dogs. And I was like, they just made this magazine for me. (laughs) It's really amazing. But uh, there, there are... There are several resources, including, I think, on on the ACB uh, Environmental Access Committee page. We did a fair amount of work on that many years ago now, probably could use an update. Um, But yeah, that's that's certainly a worthwhile thing to to write, for sure. I'll I'll keep thinking about that. You got anybody in Clubhouse? Yes, we do. First up is Caleb McKenzie. Caleb, you may unmute. Hi, everyone. This is Caleb. And Lucas, thanks for your awesome presentation. Um, and, and maybe this was covered and, and I perhaps might have something in my head messed up. But when it comes to intersections and they have like the the audible crossing signals, yeah. is it at all realistic or feasible? Or is it even a thing to have an, uh, some kind of a signal at a roundabout? Um, that's, it's a good question the, the, again, there are these, these, uh, pedestrian hybrid beacons, which are, you know, in traffic engineers speak, um, and of course everybody's got their own jargon, uh, but in traffic engineers speak, beacons are different from signals. I think to those of us who are normal human beings and not traffic engineers, that difference may be less distinct, but let me try to explain it. What they call beacons are called beacons because unless somebody does something, they're dark. In other words, there's not like a red light or a green light. It's just like the lights out, okay? And uh, beacons are used in a number of ways in traffic engineering uh, practice. Just the most common example would be if you had a firehouse on a major road, okay? Well, they might have a big beacon out in front of that that's always off unless there's a fire call, okay? And then all of a sudden it lights up and starts going, you know, flashing red, stop, 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 so that the traffic the fire engines can get out of their their garage. Um, So when they say a pedestrian hybrid beacon, it is a kind of a signal, although my traffic engineering colleagues would probably shoot me for saying that. But from the point of view of the, uh, from the point of view of the driver, all of a sudden a light starts flashing yellow and then red, so it acts as a signal. In Morristown, for example, at our new roundabout, there are signals not far from the roundabout, but the roundabout itself is not signalized. So, and in England, where there are tons of roundabouts, and Europe is just, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, a vacation with Chevy Chase, they're going around and around and around and around about, but uh, there are tons of them in Europe. And 
some of the busiest ones in London actually are signalized. I don't see that happening anytime soon in the U.S. Okay, thank you. Actually, I'll oh, say, go ahead. No, 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 thank you. Yeah, okay. Just... okay, actually, I just, I had a question, Luke, if it's, if it's okay. Um, why do they, they go yellow and then red? And do drivers tend to find the yellow um, color, you know, sort of a, an invitation to see if they can get through faster as they would with a, red, with a light that's about to go red? Yeah, there are actually, uh, there are actually several stages. You know, if, if a traffic light went from blank to red, it would probably cause accidents because people would slam on the brakes. Other people would run into the back. But nobody would know what to do with that. So oh, okay. they had to introduce a sort of gradual process to warn drivers approaching something that is not lit at all, that it was going to change. And so what it actually does is it goes to it goes from blank, in other words, no light showing, to a flashing yellow, to a solid yellow, to a solid red, and then to a flashing, okay. what they call a wigwag red, where it goes from left, left is red, right is red, left is red, right is red. The idea there being that drivers... Uh, on a solid red should stop like at any other red light they have to stop the flashing red many intersections across the united states have flashing red lights and that's where they the, you know where cars are expected to stop and then go for example uh in 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 many intersections they'll have a major crossing a minor and the minor street has a flashing red the major has a flashing yellow just to warn people that there could be tra cross traffic so that's a familiar convention for drivers uh and that's that's why they do that and it's, they seem to work fairly well at the one in morristown we have two Two crossings that are equipped with with uh, pedestrian hybrid beacons, and two crossings that are equipped with uh, rapid rectangular flashing yellow beacons. And uh, there was a lot of debate about what they should do where, and it seems to be working fairly well. I have concerns about one of the rapid rectangular flashing beacons as being not not severe enough to stop traffic, but we'll see. It'll time out. Thank you. Um, okay, okay, Natalie, back to you, I think. Yes. Um, so, Patty Fletcher, you can unmute. Hey, Patty. Hey. Hi. Thank you for your presentation. I appreciate that. Nice okay. surprise. I didn't see it till just a few minutes ago. Um, <clears throat> anyway, talk about the canes for a moment. I have been using a cane in conjunction with my second guide since bringing him home and it was a whole new territory for me it wasn't just so much to alert people um, because there's so many dogs people with dogs mm -hmm. so it's not always common i mean if you know what you're doing as a guide dog handler people will say well i couldn't even tell you were blind Mm -hmm. which is fabulous, except they don't know yep. that I'm not seeing them. Right. So I started using the cane for that, but I also started using it to help me teach him what I needed to show him because we have no O&M readily available to us here now. Yep. 
So my question, sorry for being long, is I'm finding a, I heard you say something about, uh, I had some interference, long canes versus smaller canes. I'm having a devil of a time with the folding canes, the pain in the hind end to fold and unfold. What else is there? What do I do with this? Well, uh, the, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there are a couple of canes on the market uh, that are, are kind of interesting in this regard. Neither of them are perfect, uh, but they're, they're okay. There's a, 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 there, a fellow named Chris Park who makes a, a really, really nice telescoping cane. Uh, huh. Pretty expensive, but they telescope down to about 89 inches. And the, another one, which is much cheaper, is put out by uh it'll come to me in a second uh the out of canada ambutech makes a really nice little little collapsible cane it's probably six or seven inches the problem with it it works great there's a couple things i don't like about it but it, it works great it's it's also cheap it's about 20 bucks and uh it uh uh the one thing it doesn't have is it doesn't have a red tip which you know oh. may or may not be significant, you know, but it, it would be better if it did. Right. I think you could probably add one, you know, using some duct tape or something, or you know, nail polish. <laughs> yeah, something. I'm in Tennessee. Duct tape will work this fine. Like this. Yeah, duct, duct tape. Will work. <laughs> but the uh, so that and they're very small and very light. The smallest and lightest and cheapest that I've found uh, for that purpose. Okay, so just to say. Um, back to your problem of COVID and not getting out as much. It's really annoying when I get a lot of, well, how many times do you have to show him? I've really had to train him up on ramps. I think I'm always going to have on certain things in a bus and stuff. I think there's no judgment here. I'm just saying before you shut me up, there's no judgment, y'all. If you need a cane for whatever reason, use it. That's all I got to say. Thanks. And we do have another okay, person. Chanel, yeah. Next up is Tara Fairchild. Hey, Tara. Hey, everybody. Um, hey, Lucas, you. good to hear you. Good to talk to you. Haven't seen you talk since you. 2003. It's been a while. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, I'm actually currently not a guide dog user, but I am extremely happy to hear this uh, conversation. And um, I do believe that a cane is extremely useful um, in a dog situation um, because I did find myself using it um, on and off a little here and there, depending on the area I was going to be in uh, to help with certain um, aspects of, you know, uh, dog travel. Um, You know, like you said, the the noticeableness of people knowing, you know, what exactly you're doing, uh, what your uh, disability is, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm on board with that one, and I'm not saying it's something that people have to do all the time. Of course, you know, you know, you've already got your hand full with a dog, um, and you may have to be carrying things, um, you know, in other in the other hand sometimes, but, uh, definitely, definitely worth a, a chat with the community at large, if, if it were. 
and um, the I always wondered about this whole roundabout thing and how we were going to navigate these with and without dogs. So I'm really glad to to hear this conversation happening and um, uh, two other things. Good boy. And Big Ben, Parliament. <laughs> hey, you know, thanks, thanks, Tara. Great, great to hear you. And let me just throw in another thing here. The, the, you know, I, I, we we touched on the fact that in a lot of countries, people use canes in conjunction with dogs. When, you know, I'm most familiar with Holland because I'm Dutch by background. I get back there every few years. I'm hoping to get back there in a month or two. Um, and I have a lot of friends in the Dutch guide dog movement as well. And uh, they use a short cane, a short white cane. I would say it doesn't come up much higher than your waist, actually. Uh, yeah, it is that. pretty It is pretty short. Um, I did do schooling with some uh, Dutch people in one of my guide dog experiences. So, and, so they, and one of the things that they do that's interesting with that cane, obviously it's not a primary mobility aid, right? You're not going to go wandering around Amsterdam using a cane that comes up your way. But what they do use it for is they hold it out at shoulder height, pointing straight across the street. Because the dog is going to take care of the mobility thing. This is more as a signaling indication to drivers that, hey, I'm crossing the street. The cane is out at shoulder height and it's very obvious from that perspective. So this is a, a, a manner of using a cane that no American mobility instructor would likely teach uh, and certainly not to a guide dog user. Uh, and that's why I'm saying, you know, when 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 we hang up from this call, I'm going to be moving to an undisclosed location. But the uh, uh, the we will find you. <laughs> but the uh, uh, you know, it's something to think about. Our 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 travel environment is changing, and it's we have to be. On the one hand, I think it makes the rationale for people to use dogs. Uh, as guides, because you have that additional margin of safety that a, a well-trained dog guide provides, it makes that rationale that much more solid, if it's not that it needed to be. But at the same time, we have to be cognizant of the fact that that we need to be more obvious uh, as travelers in that instance, and we have to figure out a way to do that in an integrated and, and graceful fashion as well. Thanks for letting me know about that, uh, how they held the cane, because I actually didn't realize that that was something that they did. So that's that's quite a that's a that's a nice piece of knowledge to have. Well, I think, you know, in, in Holland in particular, as, as, as many of you know, is, you know, bicycles are just like there are a lot more bicycles than there are people. And uh, uh, so when they if you're crossing a street in Amsterdam, for example, you're crossing uh, three or four bicycles side by side by side, followed by a lane of cars, followed by a median median of some strip that may be a tram stop, followed by uh, a, a row, some cars coming from the opposite direction, followed by several a, a bike lane with several rows of bicycles in it by, to the other side of the street. And nothing is, is as effective in stopping bicycles in a cane held at head height. Thank you so much. I think we're, we're closing in on our time constraint. Am I right, Natalie? Yes. And you have 15 hands raised on Zoom, just to let you know. Okay. 
What? Okay. <laughs> and, and how many on Clubhouse do you know? <laughs> uh, we have at least um, two okay. on stage. Okay, let's try to do one of those. Who, I forgot who's next, sorry. Actually, let's try we're to back do one to those Zoom. Rapid questions. Hmm? All right. Um, oh, sorry, Chanel, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying we're back to Zoom. Okay. Um, Kathy oh, Lyons, okay. you can you can unmute or ask your question. Okay, ask fast. Thank can you. you hear me now? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Lucas, thank you very much. Um, I wonder, Lucas, if I could invite you to review the pedestrian safety handbook. The committee was updating it, and I don't know if they finished that or not, but we would love your expertise in that area. And I, the, my question is, with the beacons that are not hybrid pedestrian, mm-hmm. how do blind pedestrians know it's going? Um, so you're, you're the uh, again. So we're talking like at a firehouse, for example, Kathy. Well, wherever the beacon is. Well, the uh, the if you have if at a roundabout, there are again there are two types of beacons that are used or have been suggested could be used at roundabouts. One is called a rectangular rapid flashing beacon. Yeah, the that's other, the kind I'm concerned about. Uh, and the other is called a hawk or a high, uh, pedestrian hybrid beacon. The rapid re- rectangular flashing beacon, uh, you can have uh, an accessible pedestrian signal attached to that. And right. when you it would have a locator tone like a regular uh, flashing beacon, like a regular uh, pedestrian signal crossing. Mm-hmm. But when you push the button. Normally, when you when you push the button at an APS, it doesn't change right away unless you happen to be really lucky on that one press. Usually what you're doing is you're informing a computer that you're there waiting to cross. And the next time it gets around to the correct point in the cycle, it will assign a pedestrian timing to that crossing and you will get either a rapid tick, which is what it should be, or a walk, a speech message that says, uh, Matilda walk sign is on to cross Matilda, whatever it is. Okay. Right. Um, at a, uh, rapid flash, rectangular rapid flashing beacon. When you push the button, it changes instantaneously. But what it says, is, well, well, what the message should be actually is: yellow lights are flashing. Cars may not stop. Okay, because those things only flash yellow. They don't flash red. It's not a stop sign. It's a, be- a beacon warning drivers that pedestrians are, are about to cross. Uh-huh. So let's say you had a car doing 30 that sees that light. They can't hit the brakes. They're going to go right through that yellow light. So when it says yellow lights are flashing, don't think I'm safe. You have a cautious period of time where the lights are flashing. Listen for cars yielding before you start to cross. You know what I mean? Yes. So- it's not as hard. It's not a hard and fast thing like a like a red light. Uh huh. And my last comment would make be make that accessible, and it will say yellow lights are flashing. Uh huh. But that that's but that's the best it can do at a at a yeah. And my last statement was: Have any of the guide dog schools considered making the harness handle such that it has light in it and that flashes? Um, I've seen a number of add-ons, aftermarket add-ons that you can put on. We we actually Roughware makes a flashing beacon that we we sell uh, at at cost uh, that goes onto the harness. I I've you know I, I have I like them. I think they're great. I think anything you can do is great. I'd probably have six of them, one on my head. 
but the I and I did see somewhere a, a, a harness that was at a trade show somewhere that was made that way. But I don't think anybody's really thinking of introducing that into the harness handle like wholesale uh, at this point anyway. Oh, food for thought. Thank you. Mm-hmm. OK, what do you think? Do we have time for one one more quick question, Lucas, or would you rather wrap up? About nine off. If you're ready, our next person in Clubhouse is Catherine Getchell. Hi, everybody. Quick question. Lucas, can you talk a little bit about wayfinding and what that looks like for those of us who may be traveling to the traffic circle for the first time, not being familiar with the fact that there is a traffic circle? What what does that look like and how would that guide us in an unfamiliar setting? Thanks. Well, you know, first of all, it's interesting in, in Morristown, uh, at the at the intersection that we that is now a roundabout, in one approach uh, they have put what are called bollards, which are kind of fancy poles, uh, all the way around the corner, uh, and that have chains connecting them, so that if you as a blind traveler are walking along thinking you're going to go straight, you're going to run into either a chain or a bollard, and you'll have to move away from the circle to find the crossing point. So that's one example of wayfinding using something to prevent people from crossing at the wrong point and channelize them to the correct point. Interestingly, at this particular crossing, if you're coming the other direction, there ain't no such animal and you could very easily cross incorrectly, uh, which I've written to them about and we'll see what they do. But the, uh, so typically at roundabouts, Unlike at regular intersections, at a regular, you know, four-legged intersection, if you're coming up the block, when you get to the down curve, you're in a pretty, probably in a pretty good position to cross going straight. You might want to sidestep away from the parallel street a bit uh, for your own safety and, and psychological comfort, but you're in pretty good shape. At a roundabout, if you just go straight ahead into the down curve, uh, you're going to be lined up to cross to the central island and not to uh, cross the leg of the street that you're trying to cross. So. At roundabouts, what they do in, in, you know, nothing is 100% in any kind of design, street design, but what they tend to do is they tend to uh, put the crossing downstream away from the, uh, from the, uh, the traffic circle by, oh, maybe somewhere between 20 and 60 feet. So it would be if you're walking along with the parallel street on your right, you would have to go around the bend to the right about 20 to 60 feet to find a crossing point. Also at roundabouts, let me talk about a couple of other things about roundabout crossings. At almost all roundabouts, and again, this this is very, very general. One of the things that makes them quite safe is that at any given point, you're only crossing one direction of traffic. So you might be crossing traffic coming onto the roundabout or traffic coming off the roundabout. In between those two, there is generally speaking an island, which is called a splitter island that separates the incoming from the outcoming traffic, if that makes sense to you. So you're, you're going to go around the bend, cross to the uh, splitter island, and then do a second separate crossing to uh, back to the mainland on the other side. As a general rule, the, and this is very general, people have a fair amount of trouble crossing the exit lanes. Crossing the entering lane of a street is generally quite simple for a couple of reasons. One is the traffic coming onto the roundabout will tend to slow down because of the deflection that we talked about earlier. 
cars have to slow down and yield to traffic on the circle. In general, the crosswalk to cross to the splitter island on an entry lane is behind the first car yielding at the circle. So that you have a very good and safe chance of going, getting across there to the splitter island because cars are yielding or preparing to yield at the traffic circle. From the splitter island, going to the other side of the street is a little bit of a different story. And this is really where people who are blind or visually impaired have trouble because traffic coming off the roundabout, exiting the roundabout, tend to be accelerating to get back on the straight and narrow. Um, and so it can be, this is where it can be quite difficult to tell the difference by sound from when a car is going around the roundabout or coming off of it. This is where you wanna be very aggressive in your display of the cane you now have in your pocket that you can whip out to indicate that you intend to cross. Uh, and I'll give you one more little bit of, a, of advice here. If you are going from, let's say, the southeast corner to the northwest corner, you have two choices. You could go clockwise or counterclockwise, if that makes sense to all of you. I would recommend that you go clockwise so that you are always crossing the intake lanes before you cross the exit lanes. And the reason for that is that car, cars coming off of the circle have a very good view of you on that splitter island before you cross the exit lane, much better in my experience than cars coming from the, than crossing the exit lane first where you're on the mainland and heading to the splitter island. So I would say if you're crossing, doing a full crossing of a roundabout with two crossings to get from point A to point B on the diagonal corner, do it clockwise, not counterclockwise. Thank you so much. I think we are, are quickly approaching the the end of the, this presentation, which is too bad because I, I'm, I'm guessing that there are a lot of hands that are still raised, am I right? <laughs> Yes. Uh, what's just just so that every the guide dog users of the Empire State know, we will be uh, starting another meeting after a short break. Uh, Nancy, is there a break, or are we just going to go through um, in a different Zoom room? But Lucas, do you have um, before you move to your undisclosed location? Um, do you have any uh, closing remarks for us? No, thanks. I, I've I've enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you all for quite you know and. I, if you, you can write me, uh, for those of you who had questions that I wasn't able to get to, you can, you can write me uh, at lfrank at seeingeye.org. That's L-F-R-A-N-C-K, lfrank with a C, at seeingeye.org. And I'll try to get back to you with an answer to whatever your question is. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. And I just would like you to know that we will hunt you down from the undisclosed location and hopefully even invite you. Thank you very, very much, Lucas. And thanks to everybody who's been listening. Thank you so much, Natalie and Chanel. Um, Nancy or Lori, do you have anything to say before we uh, break here? Uh, this is Lori. I would just like to, again, thank everybody for coming. And um, 
we have asked for this presentation to be podcasted. So if um, you know people that didn't make it, um, it should be available in the podcast stream at some point. And once again, to join Guide Dog Users of the Empire State, it's www.gdues.org. Thank you.